almost a year, hundreds of people continuously occupied a strip of land along the Missouri River in North Dakota in the hope that the mere fact of their presence would help change the course of America's energy future. They called themselves water protectors, protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline. They say a breach in the pipe would contaminate drinking water for millions of people, and they say the pipeline crosses treaty lands of the nearby Standing Rock Sioux tribe. Those are lands given to the Sioux in treaties in the 1800s, but then taken away. They say the tribe was not adequately consulted before the pipeline was okayed by the federal government. They say they were there in peaceful, prayerful protest of a pipeline the tribe didn't ask for and a system that overlooks them. That's one half of the Dapol story. Others say that somewhere along the line, the water protectors lost their focus. They tell a story of violent and disruptive protests, of freeloading festival goers looking for the next big get-together, of environmentalists overlooking their own impact on the land. Both stories are true, and the people behind them are equally entrenched in their parallel narratives. For the past several months, Prairie Public Broadcasting has followed these narratives, from their quiet beginnings to their inescapable collision when law enforcement officers swept through the largest of the protest camps to evict the few remaining encamped protesters. This is The Encampment. I'm Nikki Ouellette. We start in December with a story of what life was like at the camp, especially for some of the thousands of Native Americans from all across the country who joined the protest. We're at the Ochetti Shakoan camp, the largest of the Nodapple protest camps named after the seven council fires of the Sioux people. It popped up last August as an overflow from the original Sacred Stone camp started by a tribal member on the Standing Rock Reservation in April 2016 that quickly grew into an iconic image of the pipeline protest. How you doing, brother? Good, how are you today? Great, great. Are you returning? Yeah. All right, awesome. Are you a veteran by any chance? No, I'm not. Okay, sure. take care. Crazy Abe from the Lower Brule Reservation in South Dakota mans the guard station at the northern entrance of Ochetti Shakoan Camp. Today, he's five hours into his shift, and a steady stream of cars he's admitting into the camp stretches almost a quarter mile down Highway 1806 along the camp's western edge. Compared to other days this week, what's the influx like? Absolutely crazy. I mean, look at the line. Yeah, we got them stacked up, so we're doing the best we can. How you doing, brother? Good to see you. It's December 3rd, a few days after the governor of North Dakota and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers issued emergency evacuation orders for the camp. It's on a strip of contested ground. On a map, it shows up as Army Corps-managed land, but the Standing Rock Sioux tribe argue it's theirs, promised in treaties and then taken back by the government. On this sunny but frigid Saturday morning, it's unclear how the state or the Army will enforce its evacuation order and ban on incoming supplies. People from across the country are flocking here as part of a convoy of 2,000 veterans who say they're going to use their own bodies as human shields between the water protectors and police. Crazy Abe says donations keep coming in by the truckload. Uh, firewood, you know, tents, clothing, stuff to keep people warm in the winter mainly. Are you returning? We are, with some more supplies. All right, thank you. Opila. Some three to 5,000 people have joined the protest camps here. Some are fighting fossil fuels, but many tribal members have come for prayer and a return to traditional ways of living. 
Jacuzzi Balu wraps insulation around a single room structure. He's head to toe in car hearts and wields a compressed air powered nail gun. The building he's working on has a south facing opening that serves as a door, but that's it, no windows. There's just so many projects here and I have tools and skills and I heard they needed builders, um, so I'm up here. This is Baloo's second trip out from Ohio. He spent the first milling lumber with a chainsaw and returned when he saw he could still be useful. It's, it's essentially a glorified tent with a, a lot less chance of caving into snow. He's a member of the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indians. That's about all people need out here though, you know, I mean, it's like, I mean, we could, we could go for comfort, but that's not why we're here, right? Why he's here is something much bigger than construction projects or even the pipeline protests. This seems like the fight that is bringing a lot of people together. This seems like um, a campaign that is really important for for more reasons than just what it is than just fighting the pipeline. You know, it's 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 a testing ground where people are learning a lot about um, race, class, privilege. Uh, you know, um, indigenous sovereignty and decolonization. Um, and I think that it's, it's tying together so many different important issues. That's an idea I hear echoed by many at the camp. It was a place of renewal, of learning, of community. Thousands of tribes, churches, cities, universities, and advocacy groups sent resolutions of solidarity and trailer loads of support to the water protectors living in the protest camps near Standing Rock. Some people, like Kareen Lewis, even quit their jobs so they could move to camp. I do need to fight, figure out a way to pay bills back home, but I, I don't want to leave. Like, I felt like I was so at home and, and empowered to be here. Lewis is a member of the Little River Band of Ottawa Indians. She's from Michigan. In fact, a small subsection of the larger Achete Shakoan camp is called Michigan Camp. About 50 people from the Great Lakes state live here in three army green canvas tents, a mess hall, a teepee filled with supplies, and a few summer camping tents now half buried in snow. Give you guys a minute to adjust. Kareen takes me on a tour of the largest of three sleeping tents. It's dimly lit by a string of Christmas lights and a grimy plastic window in the ceiling. A gas-powered generator rumbles in the corner. Nearly a dozen cots line the edges of the canvas tent, circling two pot-bellied stoves. Yeah, and then everybody has a sense of self, self-worth here. And that's one of the most beautiful things here is that everybody feels loved and important. And, and what more could you ask for out of life? Lewis has lived at camp long enough for a routine to set in. She wakes up with the sun to help cook breakfast for everyone in Michigan camp. At some point, a water truck comes along, and later, a truck with propane tanks. She stops by the medical tent for tea when volunteer medics serve it from orange five-gallon coolers. And every day is filled with prayer. And to go to the different ceremonials and all of that, it's like nourishing me and, and I feel it makes me feel alive. Like Kuze Baloo, the guy building the little box house, Marvin Oliveros came to camp thinking his background in construction would be useful. I catch him as he's unloading a shipment of medical supplies. I come here with, you know, skilled trades and, and different things I could do, but then for a couple of days I didn't have a place to fit into to help. So for the first few days here, I was here, um, you know, we spent our days picking up trash along the river, you know, and that's what it's about. You know, every little job here matters. 
Oliveros grew up on the nearby Yankton Sioux Reservation in South Dakota. He now lives in Salt Lake City, where he helps run a food pantry. When he first arrived at a Chetty Chicoan camp, he thought he'd stay for a few days. He ended up staying for the next three months. He says something about camp culture makes it easier to mingle with people he might not interact with back at home. You have just as strong a friendship with you know, all those different types of people because you're able to separate that self, like, like that stuff from, from what, what doesn't happen in day-to-day lives, you know. He pauses for a minute as a woman walks up, lights a small bundle of sage, and wafts the smoke over each of our heads in a cleansing ritual called smudging. Thank you, sister. What feels more like real life now, the camp or Salt Lake City? You know what's so that's that, that's the perfect question to ask right now. It's going to be so hard for one just to leave this camp, just just knowing what I'm driving away from when I do drive away. He calls it reacclimating back to civilization. Like right here, I've broken it down to you know I I know what my day to day consumables will be. You know, one can of, of propane gas, I'll be able to get my place warmed up before I go to sleep, and then it'll cook my food for that day. You know what I mean? But at home, you know, you you got a gas station there across the street. You got a Walmart next door, and you got um, water on tap. He says life at camp has shown him he can live without those luxuries in the so-called real world. I keep saying the real world, and that shouldn't shouldn't be the term used. I guess this should be the real world. This should be the example. Many people believe a Chetty Shakoan camp was the largest extended gathering of tribes in recorded history. But non-natives were also drawn to the encampment. Their numbers helped garner national attention, but there were problems too. Some didn't respect the camp rules outlined by the elders. Others escalated confrontations between police and protesters. For some, being at camp was less about being part of the No Dapple movement and more about the camp's community. Sure, you want to take the bus? Take Flutterby, a tall, lean guy with feral hair and oval glasses. He's a consummate festival goer. His retrofitted bus, dubbed Mamacita, has been to Burning Man a few times. The dashboard bears a collection of talismans from the road. And um, my role is to, to drive this shuttle bus back and forth from Grass Valley. That's my role. And uh, so now we're here and we came here to help in any way we can. Flutterby doesn't have any direct connection to the Standing Rock tribe. He's not an environmental activist. He saw people getting together and came to check it out. His priority is helping other people. If your neighbors don't have their needs met, it's basically partially your fault, in my opinion. So it's like, even if they don't know how to ask, if you're not aware enough that your neighbor doesn't have everything they need, then there's something wrong there. You know, you're numb. Like Flutterby, Jesse Sankey came to camp to see it firsthand. We chat at the edge of his friend's fire circle as a group nearby drums and veterans set off fireworks. It seemed the perfect time to come. Sankey's a wildland firefighter. He drove with a caravan from Missoula, Montana, to join the veterans. The visual, when you come around the corner over there and you see this whole camp, all the color, all the, all the people, differences once you're in camp, it really does feel like the America I believe in. Sankey volunteered in New Orleans as a medic after Hurricane Katrina. 
He says a Chetty Shakoan camp has the same feel, except the injuries here come from other humans, not a natural disaster. He's familiar with the camp and protest actions from Facebook posts. In September, he read about a clash between protesters and private security guards with dogs hired by Energy Transfer Partners, the company building the Dakota Access Pipeline. In October, he learned more than 140 protesters were arrested for trespassing as law enforcement officers in riot gear pushed them off private land near the pipeline construction site back to Ochetti Shakoan camp. In November, he watched videos, like this one posted by The Guardian, of police spraying protesters with water hoses, tear gas, and rubber bullets in sub-freezing temperatures. Now, in December, standing a few hundred yards from where all those clashes took place, he says he's not sure if he's ready for it. The uh, aggression will be something I'm not, I've never seen towards one another on that level. Uh, I don't know what that'll look like. But law enforcement and North Dakota government officials defend their actions. Here's former Lieutenant Governor Drew Wrigley at a press conference in December explaining why law enforcement used water hoses on protesters. Any person wishing to extract themselves from the flow of water needed to only move backward 30 feet. They put themselves in that position. They were, had started fires. There was a number of them still burning. And in addition to that, they were throwing rocks at the police and other objects. The Morton County Sheriff's Office is the department spearheading law enforcement of the pipeline protests. To date, it has arrested more than 700 people on charges ranging from criminal trespass to disorderly conduct, obstruction of a highway, reckless endangerment, and engaging in and inciting a riot. Policing the protest has cost Morton County four and a half million dollars, and the state nearly 36 million. Despite the rising tension and the cost, in December, former Governor Jack Dalrymple said the state would not block supplies coming into camp or forcibly remove protesters. Um, all we're saying is that we encourage you uh, to find a better place to be, and uh, we will continue to do that, and we want the entire public to know uh, this is this is not a safe place. While the government said the camps weren't safe, people living in a Chetty Shikoan camp told me this organically grown community in the middle of the prairie felt like a different world. Marvin Oliveros, the guy from Salt Lake City with the food pantry, told me... This camp's going to be an example of what, what the way life can be and should be. You know, the, the minute you walk through that gate, they say, welcome home. This is everybody's home, not just indigenous people's home. It seemed to touch him in a way that surprised him. I've never been so emotional in my life, in my whole life, as I have in these last three and a half weeks I've been here. For many of things, you know, this camp needs to be the example of a lot of things, you know, the unity, the camaraderie, as well as the sustainability. The way Oliveros talks about camp, as a community built with intention that he hopes will rub off on the greater American society, is something I heard echoed at camp again and again. I was curious how the camps at Standing Rock compared to other protest camps, so I found an expert on these kind of things. Anna Feigenbaum has been studying protests and the encampments that sometimes grow up around them for the past decade. She's a professor at Bournemouth University in southern England and recently co-authored a book about them. 
We chatted over Skype. It is very hard to go to a protest camp and come back the same person. Feigenbaum says camps like this form out of necessity. Protesters need a space to meet their basic needs. But the daily grind of protesting, constantly clashing with law enforcement, being out in the cold for hours at a time, requires other kinds of care. That's why you'll see well-being spaces, craft areas, and spiritual centers at protest camps. A Chetty Shikoan camp even had a school for the children of protesters who planned to be there long term. So they almost create these sort of miniature cities that uh, have their own kinds of infrastructures and urban planning. And protest camps are also, uh, because they're so such a different way of living than most people are used to, they become kind of sites of experimentation and innovation um, where people are willing to take different kinds of risks and try out different kinds of things. Think of the camaraderie formed by a simple act, like sharing soup with 100 people on the cold prairie. They're experiences that we just very, very rarely have um, where it's not just that we're all there together, but it's that we're all there together for at least something, some kind of common goal for this thing that we all, for all these different reasons, uh, believe in or want. Feigenbaum says while this transformative aspect of protest camps is meaningful for the people living them, the camp itself doesn't usually affect societal change. But... The work that people trudgingly and tiringly do every day in little underfunded offices does not get massive amounts of media and government attention in the way that a giant, uh, you know, symbolic protest camp does. She says protest camps and desk-bound paperwork can form a symbiotic relationship to create a successful movement. For Standing Rock, she says success can be considered on two fronts, blocking the pipeline and spurring social change for indigenous people and environmental protection. And I think, you know, when the history books tell the story of Standing Rock, we're going to see in a moment, like we saw in the 1960s, where um, the Native American or indigenous movement in the United States really made an impact and really got into people's hearts and minds. In the past few months, things have moved very quickly for the Dakota Access Pipeline. In early December, the Army Corps announced it would not grant the requested permit for the pipeline. Instead, the Corps said it would conduct a lengthy environmental review of the project before approving a crossing under the Missouri River that's drawn so much protest. But then, in January, President Donald Trump ordered the Army to expedite that review process and resurrected the Keystone XL pipeline. In February, the Army Corps granted the easement for the river crossing. Construction immediately resumed, and the new governor of North Dakota, Doug Burgum, set February 22nd as the deadline for remaining protesters at a Chetty Shikoan camp to leave. Marvin Oliveros, the Salt Lake City guy with the food pantry, had been at camp this whole time. I called him in late February after he returned home. When we talked in December, you said you were kind of imagining that the transition back to what we were calling real life, um, you would imagine that that was going to be kind of a challenge. Can you tell me a little about how that was? The minute you pull away from camp, you start to worry about people, you start to worry about friends, family, um, as well as just just camp in general itself, you know, what what, what could happen over, you know, whether it be a day or week. So that was definitely one of the biggest hardships about pulling away from camp. Civilization does have its good points, he says. But I do got to admit, the hot showers were something that 
was were great to have back in the day to day routine, you know. So, um, but with that, you know, going back to trying to maintain the mindset, you really think about, you know, those extra three minutes or four minutes that you may spend in the shower just soaking up the hot water. You know, you, you get kind of, you feel kind of guilty about it at times. Oliveros first went to a Chetty Chacoan camp thinking he could use his real-world skills to help build up the camp. Now that he's back in Salt Lake City, he's using what he learned at camp to build up his project there, a sustainable eco-village community that revolves around the food pantry he works at. We have actually a couple people from camp that'll be um, assisting and, and being some of our first um, first residents to this endeavor here once they leave camp. So so we hope to you know utilize not just what I have learned from camp, but what others that have specifically been at camp as well have learned. One of the incoming women has a background in organic gardening. Another works with bees. Oliveros hopes to use green energy from solar and wind to power the future living space. He's in the delicious stages of early planning, when anything feels possible, like how camp felt early on. We're trying to start and see what it evolves into, basically what it comes down to. Oliveros isn't the only one taking lessons from camp and trying to apply them to the outside world. Many versions of the No Dapple protest camps are popping up across the country to counter other pipeline projects, like the Two Rivers Camp in Texas to fight the Trans-Picos Pipeline, a camp on an Amish farm in Pennsylvania to block the Atlantic Sunrise Pipeline, and a woodland protest camp in Florida against the Sabal Trail Pipeline. Oliveros isn't surprised. A huge thing that has has stemmed from this is the fact that people see now that, that, you know, this isn't standard picketing and protesting anymore. There's been a big evolution to activism o- over the past, you know, X amount of years. Yet, like the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, most of these camps and their protesters are a last-ditch effort at pipelines nearly complete. In fact, construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline completed in mid-March. In February, the new governor of North Dakota, Doug Burgum, issued another evacuation order for the Achete Shikoan camp. Our concern is also about life safety. North Dakota's order came on the heels of a second Army Corps evacuation notice. The area where protesters pitched their tents and teepees was in a floodplain. Uh, as I've said before, is everybody in North Dakota is on the clean water team. Uh, we all we all want clean water, and we don't we don't want to have the irony of a of a uh, protest that began around protecting water uh, to actually be right now one of the biggest environmental threats uh, to clean water. The Missouri right now is the camp itself. He said he worried that months worth of human waste, debris, oil, and battery acid leaked from unused cars, canisters of propane, all of the things that made life at a Chetty Shikoan camp possible. All of it would be washed away if a flash flood occurred. At camp in early February, dump trucks and tractors plow debris along muddy makeshift roads as protesters hurry to dismantle the Achete Shikoan camp's tent city. Tribal member Lindale Dottie Agard picks through piles to help with cleanup. She first arrived at Achete Shikoan camp in August with her kids. You know, I showed them how people are living and what they're doing, how they're fighting for our water, which is a great thing, but now that everybody has to leave, it's kind of sad how this looks because it looks terrible. 
I don't like the way it looks. Because it's all good stuff and it's all going to waste. It's like I wish I could uh, grab it all and take it with me, but I can't. Cleanup is happening so fast that a lot of the stuff that came here as donations is just being tossed into the garbage. Some things are frozen into the ground. Agard says she's sad to see it's not being used. You know, there's tents, there's chairs, there's jackets, hats, gloves, you know, that, that could have been used and, you know, there's nowhere to store it. So now it's ruined by water, snow, you know, it's just damaged. But other campers, like Dorothy Sunbear of Wounded Knee, South Dakota, say they're only temporarily packing up camp. We're cleaning up our kitchen area here and uh, we, move, we plan to move to higher ground. Sunbear is Oglala Sioux. She says it doesn't matter if she moves to a new site on the reservation or off. This is all our land. We can move anywhere we want. On February 22nd, Morton County Sheriff's Office did clear out the camp and arrested 46 people. Dana Yellowfat is a councilman for the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, but spoke with us. From my heart and as, as a man. Yellowfat believes toward the end, a Chetty Shakoan camp lost its way. What had been a camp of prayer and respect changed, especially after Standing Rock Sioux Tribal Chairman David Archambault asked campers to disband. He cited violence at protests, protesters draining resources from the Cannonball community, police roadblocks that meant Standing Rock residents had to travel an extra half hour along a different highway to run errands or receive medical attention in Bismarck as becoming a burden for tribal members. It hurt the tribe's relationship with the rest of North Dakota. Yellowfat says a lot of protesters didn't listen when the chairman asked them to leave, which pitted the tribe against some of the water protectors they once welcomed in. And, and with this element coming into camp that doesn't want to listen to elders, doesn't want to listen to anybody, uh, it really put a, a negative spin on everything. And uh, they really changed uh, this camp and um, not in a good way. Yellowfat says he's ready to see the protest move now from the camp into other arenas. The movement was created here, but it needs to spread now. It needs to move forward. It needs to keep moving. It needs to stay dynamic, but not necessarily here. Opponents of the Dakota Access Pipeline continue to fight its construction in court and push for the pipeline's financial backers to divest. Teepees popped up on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. in March to protest President Trump's decision to greenlight the Dakota Access and Keystone XL pipelines. But in North Dakota, right now, the focus is on mending fences between the Standing Rock Tribe and the rest of the state. I think that there has been considerable damage done to that relationship. Kay Lacoe lives about an hour north of the protest camps in Bismarck. She says the past several months have been pretty rough for residents in North Dakota who have nothing to do with the pipeline protests. I don't think that things will ever go back to the way that it was before, but I think that there's going to be a new normal. That said, Lacoe says she knows it's not the Standing Rock tribe that's caused that damage. She calls the tribe her neighbors. We love them, we want them to remain our neighbors, and we want to repair those relationships. It'll take time, she says, but... Eventually, after a lot of work and time to have some wounds heal, I think that we are going to be able to be better neighbors to each other. But I am 
not naive enough to think that it's going to happen overnight in the year 2017, maybe not even in this decade. But I think, I believe, and I hope that we all grow and learn from everything that's happened. Standing in the remains of the Ocheti Shakoan camp, Dana Yellowfat of the Standing Rock tribe echoes that. He says the protest brought a lot of buried feelings to the surface, particularly latent racism. But now that it's out in the open, he's hopeful people can address it head on. That's one of the things that we need to confront is that racism. And the only way to do that is through education. And my culture and my ways might differ from yours, but we can still be friends. And to get to that point, we need to learn about each other. Achete Shikoan camp is abandoned now. The state estimates contractors removed more than 21 million pounds of trash and debris from three areas of land managed by the Army Corps. The State Historical Society of North Dakota plans to hold on to some of these remnants for future exhibits on the protests. If the so-called water protector's success is measured in black and white, did they stop the pipeline or didn't they? It seems the water protectors failed. But if their success is measured in a deeper, symbolic change, did they draw enough attention to their movement to change how society thinks about energy and indigenous rights? It would seem, perhaps, a small victory. As Standing Rock tribal member Dana Yellowfat said, All over this world you see signs that say no dapple, you see signs that say mini wichoni. Mini wichoni, water is life. People know what the term mini wichoni is and you know, that's our language. They, you know, they have an understanding of what that, what that means. The Encampment was reported and produced by me, Nikki Willette, and Amy Sisk of Prairie Public Broadcasting, who's also our fact checker. Alisa Barba of Inside Energy is our editor. The Encampment was funded by a grant from the North Dakota Humanities Council, an independent state partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Special thanks to Bill Thomas of Prairie Public Broadcasting, Celia Talbot-Tobin for technical support, and Marco Forcone for studio space. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the North Dakota Humanities Council or the National Endowment for the Humanities.